All right. Uh, today's scripture verse comes from Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Each came with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The total number of Jacob's descendants was 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation eventually died, but the Israelites were fruitful, increased rapidly, multiplied, and became extremely numerous so that the land was filled with them. A new king, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply further. And when war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramses as supply cities for Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. They worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with difficult labor in brick and mortar and in all kinds of field work. They ruthlessly imposed all of this work on them. So the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, the first whose names were Sephora and the second whose name was Pua, when you help the Hebrew women give birth, observe them as they deliver. If the child is a son, kill him. But if it's a daughter, she may live. The midwives, however, feared God, and they did not do as the king of Egypt told them. They let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives can, give, can get to them. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very numerous. Since the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Pharaoh then commanded all his people, you must throw every born son of the Hebrews into the Nile, but let every daughter live. We are starting a new sermon series in the book of Exodus. Now, Exodus is the foundational story of God's people. It's the fundamental storyline for Israelites. It's the second book of the Bible, so it's not literally the beginning of the story. Uh, There's some really important context that comes before, but this, this is where things really get going. I'm not used to having the light behind me. So if you were to ask an Israelite, who are you? What's your story? Um, they would tell you something like, we were hopelessly enslaved by an oppressive king that wanted us dead. We couldn't save ourselves, but God saved us and set us free. We were slaves in Egypt, but God made us his own just as he had promised. He set us free so we could know him and love him because he first loved us. It doesn't sound very different from a Christian testimony. That's the fundamental story and identity of every Israelite. And the Exodus story is a foundational story for Christians, too. So we're looking at Exodus to learn about God's character, what God is like, what he does, um, God's promise to save his people, and to learn about who we are what we need and what we have in God. So as we look at this story today, we're going to consider three things. The problem of oppression, courage for justice, and salvation out of darkness. So oppression, courage, and darkness. Let me pray for us. God, I ask that you would um, open our hearts and our ears to receive 
your truth. Lord, um, soften our hearts to receive um, from you, God, to see you for who you are, um, that we would know who we are um, in Christ Jesus. Uh, In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so first the problem. Let's back up and remember where we are in the story. So Genesis, the first book of the Bible, um, tells the story of God calling Abraham and promising to make him a great nation, to bless him, and to make them a blessing to all the world. And when God made that promise, he said, uh, but not yet. First, your offspring shall be afflicted for 400 years. Uh, but I will judge that nation that afflicts them, and I will set them free. So even in Genesis 15, God has already said how things are going to go here. Uh, Genesis then follows Abraham's son Isaac and Isaac's son Jacob. Um, and the story finishes by focusing on Jacob's son, Joseph. Long story short, Joseph, through extraordinary circumstances, rises to prominence in Egypt, uh, becomes the right-hand man to the king, to Pharaoh, Uh, And God reveals to Joseph that there will be a seven-year-long famine. Uh, So Joseph makes plan for all of Egypt to get through the famine. Uh, Egypt has food throughout. And because of Joseph, the whole region is basically provided for. Uh, And that brings us to our passage today. So now Exodus starts by telling us that the family of Jacob has increased and multiplied, being fruitful and filled the land. And that language... Uh, be fruitful and multiply should sound familiar. Uh, in Genesis 1, God tells humanity to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So we're told that is exactly what's happened. Uh, Joseph has been a blessing to Egypt and to Israel, and now Israel is multiplying and filling the land. And if this were Genesis 1, the result would be, and it was good. Israel is doing what God commanded them, what God planned for humanity, and so it should go well for them. But that's the first jarring surprise for us. It doesn't. Because there is a new king in town. This king, the important thing we're told is he didn't know about Joseph. He doesn't know about how Joseph saved all of Egypt from famine and disaster. He doesn't know about the God who revealed to Joseph the famine that was coming. He doesn't know about how God, through Joseph, blessed Egypt. And so Pharaoh looks at Joseph's people, and all he can think is threat. Pharaoh is worried that if war breaks out, the Israelites might fight against Egypt. I mean, sure, they've lived there for 400 years now, but they're not real Egyptians, so you, know, you can't trust them. And there's a lot of them, so we can't let them be united. If Pharaoh knew about Joseph, he wouldn't have felt this way, right? That's what the text is saying. Why does that matter? Because Pharaoh is just doing the most natural thing in the world. When we draw lines about who is in and who is out, who we can trust and who we can't, the people who look different, they're out. It doesn't matter how long they've lived here, how much they've become part of Egyptian society. As far as Pharaoh is concerned, we can't trust them. If Pharaoh knew anything about their history, he'd feel differently, but he doesn't. And that's what's important. Ethnic strife is incredibly common when national glory is on the line. He's worried about Egypt's future. And so they're a threat. There's a new king with these aspirations, and that leads to ethnic conflict and oppression. 
He puts them to work and oppresses them ruthlessly. And they keep multiplying. And that makes him more worried and fearful. So Pharaoh makes them work as slaves, and he makes their lives bitter. And then it gets worse. Pharaoh's not content merely to make them slaves. He wants them eradicated. Right? This is genocide. He tells the midwives, if you see an Israelite boy being born, kill him. Israelite babies are bad news for Egypt's future, so kill him. Now, I want to make sure this is perfectly clear. This is the pressing problem that God is going to rescue his people from. God is going to set his people free from this horrible situation. The problem God is going to save Israel out of is social, economic, and physical oppression at the hands of Egypt. Right? When Israelites look back and say, God rescued us and set us free, they're specifically talking about the real, in this world, social and economic oppression that we're talking about here. Why is this significant? God cares about real, in this world, day-to-day, flesh-and-blood injustices. Next chapter says that God knows the cries and the agony of his people. God hears and feels their cries for help. And not only that, God comes down as a result of their cries. Chapter 3, God says he has come down to deliver them. God comes and sets them free, and he takes them as his own. And God ultimately dwells within his people in the tabernacle, spiritually present, because they are being physically oppressed. It's a mistake to think that God doesn't care about our very real problems of social, economic, physical, whatever oppression in this world. God cares about real problems and real injustices. God cares about when we are sinned against. And why am I taking so much time here? Some of you might be interested in Christianity, um, but you struggle with this problem. As far as you know, for whatever reason, uh, to you, Christians have a reputation for not really caring about injustices in this world. Right? You look at the world and you recognize a lot is wrong. A lot is not how it's supposed to be. Um, but you, know, you might wonder, does God care? Right? Maybe, maybe you know Christians who don't really care, as far as you can tell. And you might say, you know, I'm not wor- interested in worshiping a God who doesn't care about the real injustice in this world. And frankly, you shouldn't be interested in worshiping a God who doesn't care about the real injustices people face in the world. But the God of the Bible does care. The foundational story of God's people is that when they were being really oppressed in real time, when their lives were made bitter because they were sinned against, God was moved and set them free. God hates injustice in this world, and God deals with injustice in this world. Then there are some of you who are Christians, but this conversation makes you uncomfortable right now. Right? You might say, wait, wait a minute. I thought our real problem was sin. I thought that was the problem God deals with. The world matters, sure, but you know, eternity is what matters, right? Souls are what matter. So which is it? It's both. It is absolutely true that the major deep problem is sin. And if we read our Bibles, we absolutely see that. So let's put this story in context. 
So first, let's go backwards just a little bit. Genesis comes before Exodus. The major problem in Genesis 3 is humanity's rebellion against God. Right? They make themselves king. We make ourselves kings instead of letting God lovingly rule over us. They rebel, and all of creation begins to fall apart. There's enmity between man and woman. Uh, there's strife and murder and envy. There's isolation and fear. Why? Because we broke trust with God. The problem is not circumstances and situations. The problem is the sin in our hearts. So that's going backwards. If you go forward in the story, we're going to see um, real soon in the spring uh, that Israel is seriously flawed. They get set free and immediately they rebel against God. They fail miserably. The Passover lamb shows that Israel needs to be protected from judgment just as much as Egypt does. And when you keep going into Judges, Israel is completely indistinguishable from the immoral, unjust pagan nations all around. You set the oppressed free, and immediately they become just like the oppressors. If you don't deal with the problem of sin, the oppressed will always turn around and become the oppressors. Israel's problem was more than just their oppressed situation in Egypt. And yet, God also sets them free from real slavery. God addresses the bitterness of their lives caused by oppression and injustice. If you think our problem is only sin and what matters is only souls, then you aren't being fully biblical because that's not what God says. God will say to Israel, your deepest problem is sin and without forgiveness you are eternally lost. But God's response to real pain and suffering is... I'm going to set you free. God doesn't, you know, come down and lecture the Indians, the Israelites and say, look, I know this slavery business is bitter. It's no good. Pharaoh is a bad dude. But, you know, your real problem is sin. So I'm not going to do anything about the slavery. Oh, there's the baby killing. I almost forgot. That's real bad. Oof. But, you know, not as big a deal as your souls. So it's, that's not for me to fix. That's not what God says. He says, I care about all of it. So if you're a Christian, you should too. If you're a Christian, then because of your commitment to obeying God and believing the Bible, you ought to care a lot about poverty, oppression, injustice, race relations, orphans, when people are mistreated, when society holds people down, because God does. That's not my opinion. The Bible tells me so. Now, some of you might be wondering, okay, cool, God cares about injustice and pain and suffering in this world. Why exactly? I mean, surely eternity matters so much more, right? Well, when we say things like God cares more about eternity than the present, we're making a distinction that I don't think the Bible makes nearly as much as we do. Uh, let me try to show you why that might be the case. There's this new king in town, right? That's the problem. Pharaoh is not just a human king. As Exodus goes on, it becomes clear that there's this showdown building between the Lord, the true God and king of heaven and earth, and between Pharaoh, who's this false little G God, right? He's this little G God king of Egypt. And throughout the Bible, Pharaoh becomes this representative or symbol of all the false gods of this world and how they oppress us. 
Pharaoh is a real king who really oppresses, but he also represents all the false gods clamoring for authority in this world. And Pharaoh doesn't only represent the false god kings, he's animated by false god kings. The spiritual reality is that there is a false god king who is vying for control over the earth, and God will crush him. All of creation is falling apart because of sin, and God is going to rescue it. God made his creation, heaven and earth, and his creation is good, and he will set it free from every spiritual and earthly force that oppresses what he made. God hates the idols that control us and dehumanize us. He hates the ethnic and nationalist strife that leads to bitterness and oppression and killing like we see in this chapter. God hates it all because there is a battle for what God has made. And the war is waged in the spiritual realm and also in the dusty, dirty, earthy realm as well. So, yes, God cares about our eternal spiritual conditions, and that's exactly why he cares about everything that happens here. So that's the problem of oppression. Second, courage for justice. So Israel is literally under a death sentence here, right? Kill the male babies. And we get our first ray of hope, our first heroes in this story. There are two midwives, Shifra and Pua, and they decide to defy the king. They refuse to kill the babies. Now notice, this is the epic story of deliverance, right? For Israel, it's their foundational story. And the first heroes we get are these two women, women who would otherwise be totally insignificant in society. And now, I mean, we get their names. They're social nobodies in Egypt. And the most powerful person in the entire world wants to kill their people. So, I mean, do I have to convince you that what they're doing is a little risky, is dangerous? Like, they're putting their lives on the line here. They aren't just like liking something posted on Facebook. They aren't retweeting something that somebody else said, you know, about how we should, you know, participate or something. They aren't just, you know, intenting a popular rally where their friends will be. What they're doing is costly, dangerous, and, you know, as far as the overall country is concerned, unpopular. The law of the land has killed the babies, and they're saying, nope. In all likelihood, too, they are calling others to join in. Okay, so commentators think these probably aren't the only two midwives in Israel, given the population size, too, is probably not enough. Um, and enough male children are living that it gets Pharaoh's attention. So it's not like they're the only two among hundreds who are doing this thing. They're probably something like midwife guild leaders. So they would be calling the other midwives and saying, this is what we're doing. And Pharaoh knows they're responsible, right? That's why when he sees, oh, all these male children are still living, who does he call? Shifra and Pua. So these women are acting with incredible courage. And they're calling others to act with incredible courage, too. Why? Why would they do that? So look at verse 17. But the midwives were moral relativists, believing that all moral rules were culturally conditioned, determined by different cultures, not binding on other peoples of others' cultures. Sorry, that's a different translation. Um, <clears throat> but the midwives believe that nobody has the right to tell anybody what is right or wrong for them, and that everybody has the right to decide for themselves what is right. In case you can't tell, I'm being sarcastic. Uh, the Bible doesn't say that. 
It's the kind of thing the world says today. But the Bible says they did this because they feared God. Now, before I get misunderstood, a lot of people who are moral relativists um, are deeply committed to justice. A lot of people who believe that nobody has the right to tell anybody how to live right, can be deeply committed to living good lives. So don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that moral relativists cannot live good and moral lives. They can. But this, I think, is painfully obvious. Those beliefs provide no fundamental basis for living courageously for justice. They provide no motivation to put your life on the line and to act with courage. If you believe nobody has the right to tell anybody what to do, then you can exhibit courage and bravery despite your beliefs, not because of them. I mean, imagine these two women going to the other midwives and saying, join us in risking your lives for what is right. Right? This is probably like an unpopular position, right? Like you could die because Pharaoh wants to kill us. And, you know, if you give him a reason to. Right. So what if the other women were like, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to put my life on the line here. How would these two midwives motivate others? How would they obligate them to stand up and do what is right? To be courageous. Would the appeal, look, everybody has a right to define right and wrong for themselves, so you should sacrifice your well-being for this cause. Would that work? I mean, they would probably say, well, if everybody has the right to define right and wrong for themselves, then I'm defining for myself the easy route. If everything is relative, I'm rejecting your morality. That's just your opinion. Right? What would motivate you and what would obligate others to courageously stand up for justice and do what is right, even when it is unpopular, even when it is going to cost you something? These women fear God. Now, fear in the Bible doesn't mean they are afraid. It means they revere God. They are full of awe and wonder when they consider God and his attributes. It's a deep and powerful love for God. It's not just sentimental, sappy love. It's love with teeth. It's because of that awe and wonder that they're willing to sacrifice and stand up for the people. The law of the land is we don't want those babies, so kill them. But they say, we fear God, we won't do it. It could be very unpopular, right, to say, we don't support this, but they fear God, so they do. Now, you might be wondering, why, but why should fear of God be um, a motivation to do justice? How does that work? Well, the Bible teaches us, if we truly love God, then we love the thing God loves, and we hate the things God hates. So because God hates injustice, because he hates murdering babies, because he hates oppression and violence against the poor and the marginalized, you do too. But not only that, when we love God, we know that the most important thing we have is God. Our greatest joy is to please him. Our greatest treasure is that we belong to him. And that means there is nothing in this world that compares to what we have in God. Nothing in our life, not our reputation, our comfort, our future, none of that is worth holding on to if it means we're holding back from God. So when you fear God, you are set free 
to spend yourselves for justice and for what is right, even if it costs you dearly. Now, some people think that, you know, if you believe in God, then you would never fight for justice or care about this world because all you care about is heaven. Uh, Maybe you've heard uh, the saying that religion is the opiate of the masses. Um, That's this idea. You know, people who say that don't understand biblical religion. Because if this world is all there is, then what motivation do you have to sacrifice what you have in this world? Why would you give your lives for justice if the only thing you have is this world? Fear of God means we can lose everything in this world because we have God. Biblical religion makes us willing to care deeply about this world. So, you know, for example, when Martin Luther King Jr. would appeal to white Americans to make sacrifices for civil rights, like, how did he appeal? Right? He didn't say, morality is relative, so you should sacrifice. Right? He didn't say, this world is all there is, so you might as well sacrifice your own good for others. Right? He appealed to the law of God. He appealed to the image of God in our shared common humanity. And he quoted the Bible where it says that justice shall roll down like waters. He motivated people to sacrifice for others by telling them to be more Christian, not by telling them to be less. Exodus has a ray of hope because these women fear God. And if we fear God, there's hope for us to act with courage too. So we've seen the problem of oppression, courage for justice, and finally, Salvation out of darkness. So the midwives stand up to Pharaoh, and so Pharaoh doubles down. He says, the midwives won't kill them at birth? Fine. Then throw the sons into the river. This is where a lot of us, I think, throw up our hands. We're like, I mean, come on. Like, it's just going to keep getting worse, by the way. You know, if the story ended, you know, before this verse, if it ended in verse 21, then we get like a happy fairy tale, or we get the prosperity gospel. Right? Things were bad, but people were brave, and they beat the bad guy, and God blessed them. And if the story ended there, fairy tale. But no, Pharaoh escalates the problem in a big way. And it's not the last time, right? Pharaoh's going to escalate the problem again and again and again. He takes their straw away. He says, keep making bricks. He will constantly escalate the problem, but God is not surprised. Multiple times, God tells Moses, bring this plague, do this sign and wonder, but Pharaoh's not going to believe you. He's not going to let you go. All right, and I read that, I'm like, what? God says, Pharaoh won't let you go yet, and that is so my wonders will multiply. Things keep getting worse, but God is not surprised. He's completely sovereign throughout. If you are going through hardship now, It might get worse. And you'll be tempted to cry out to God and ask, what's going on here? How could you let this happen? You you might be very tempted to think, God is not in control here. God is not in control. But he is. Pharaoh won't let you go yet, and that is so my wonders will multiply. Here's the thing. Salvation is going to come out of a horrible situation. God wants Israel to know, God wants you to know that he can save out of anything. There is no darkness too dark that he cannot save you out of. And God wants you to know, you can't save yourself out of this. 
Small problems need small solutions. Human-sized problems need human-sized solutions. But our problems are God-sized. So, remember, Israel's biggest problem isn't Egypt. They need to be set free from Egypt, yes. But once they are, they are enslaved to idols. They fall into immorality and violence. Their society is full of injustice. They are constantly attacked by enemies. They're taken into exile. You know, they're saved from Egypt, but they still need to be saved. And you and I are no different. Throughout the Bible, Exodus, the Exodus is not only the story that the biblical authors look back to, it's also the story they use to look forward. So the prophets will say, one day God will deliver us so completely that we will no longer say, as God saved us out of Egypt. Right? There would be a salvation so complete that it would make the, the Exodus salvation look tiny. There would be such all-embracing release from injustice that release from slavery in Egypt would be a small thing. There would be an ultimate showdown with the ultimate false god king that would end all showdowns forever. And there would be a darkness and a horrible situation far worse than anything experienced in history. But God would not be surprised. God's ultimate salvation at the cross came through the worst circumstances possible. If Jesus' problems didn't escalate, we wouldn't ultimately be saved. Like the Israelites, Jesus was beaten and mistreated and his life was made bitter. And he wasn't just enslaved and whipped. He was nailed to a cross. I mean, how's that for not having freedom? Like the Israelites' sons, the ruling authorities wanted him dead. And he was thrown outside the city gates to perish. And like the midwives, Jesus fixed his eyes to obey God. But not at the risk of his life, but at the guaranteed cost of his life. Jesus' love and fear for God was so great that even when he cried out the night before, is there any other way? Please let this cuss pass before me. He was still able to say, but your will be done. If Jesus didn't fear God, he wouldn't have gone to the cross for you. And from the cross, while he was being murdered, do you remember what he prayed? He's experiencing the worst injustice possible here, right? And what is his prayer regarding the perpetrators? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. How can he say that? They're... Because his showdown wasn't ultimately with Rome, with the Pharisees. It wasn't with Pharaoh, but with the ultimate false god king ruler of this world. And at the cross, Jesus was disarming the powers and the authorities that animate all the injustice and evil in this world. Jesus let evil bring its worst against him, and Jesus won. All sin and death could do was prepare Jesus for his ultimate victory when he rose from the dead on the third day. You can fear God and live with courage because your ultimate hope is for a resurrected future. Jesus lives bodily, physically, really and truly to redeem all of creation. Jesus lives in a body because God cares about this world and has plans to redeem it. Jesus didn't like get spiritually whisked away to heaven. He was resurrected to a physical body because God cares about all that he has made. 
And because of our future hope, that means no darkness can shake our resolve to live for God. God is not surprised when things get worse, and God is sovereign over all of history. You can be sure that at the end of time, justice will reign, that slavery will end, that poverty will be overturned, that ethnic strife will cease, and there will be no more tears, no more sorrow. If you're a Christian, when you're stuck in darkness, do not lose hope that God is in control. Jesus went through the ultimate darkness so that you can be sure that your darkness will only ever end in resurrection and light. And let that steadfast hope motivate you to live a sacrificial life pouring yourselves out for others. Love the things God loves. Love the people that God loves, the people he made, and hate the things that God hates. And be willing to take risks to please him. And if you aren't a Christian, or if you aren't sure what you believe, consider how Christianity provides hope that darkness will not prevail and a motivation to live courageously for justice. If God has put in your heart a desire to see things set right, maybe he's calling you to follow him in his work setting them right. Let's pray. God, we thank you that when we were hopeless, when we were enslaved, when we were your enemies, you died for us. You set us free. Jesus, you have done what we could not. And you give us life that we can walk in your footsteps and follow you and be made like you. Lord, we have hope that when we go from being oppressed, we will not become the oppressors because your Holy Spirit lives and dwells within us. Jesus, empower us this week um, to live for your truth, your goodness, your beauty. God, to love all that you have made. God, there is nothing that we can give up that we won't get back a hundredfold. And we already have you, Lord. Your love is better than life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.